Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. Do you think of language learning as a critical public health topic? Probably not. We don't often hear it discussed alongside things like vaccinations, access to clean water, and nutritious food. However, I believe strongly that studying a foreign language and the history of other cultures is critical to public health. My guest today is a teacher of the Russian language, Daria Molchanova. I first came across her work in 2020 when I began to study Russian, and I stumbled upon her podcast, The Slow Russian Language Podcast. Through her work, I learned that studying Russian was not just more interesting, but also more fun when I also studied the Russian culture and history. It also showed me that there were millions of people all over the world who had a unique view on the world informed by their language and history that I previously had no idea about. When we think about wanting to understand other cultures and to work with those cultures to build a better and healthier future for everyone on this planet, it is critical that we try to understand things through their perspective, and that includes understanding things through their language. That is why I believe that language learning and acquisition is a critical public health topic, and why I am so excited to bring to you my conversation today with Daria Molchanova. Daria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Super happy to be here. It is beyond my pleasure. I just want to start by introducing you a little bit and sort of fangirling because I have been a fan of your podcast for uh, at least three years. I started listening to it because I was studying Russian and my dad is a big language studier, and he said, you have to find a podcast in the slow version of your language so you can get used to listening and comprehending a little bit less than normal conversation speed. And so I thought, okay, fine. And it was the middle of COVID, it was summer, and I just typed into Apple Podcasts Slow Russian, and up came your podcast. And I remember, because I was actually visiting my mother-in-law, and I started listening to it every single night. And I have listened to every episode of your podcast, most of them at least two, if not 10 times for some of them. I have a list of my wow. favorite episodes <laughs> we'll talk about. So if you're wondering why your plays just skyrocketed after 2020, that was it was me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And sometimes um, I still can't believe uh, that uh, this what I don't know when you say it, I still I, I don't know, I just can't comprehend that it's happening, that somebody's from another part of the world, I was living back in Russia that, back then, is listening to me and just getting something valuable. I'm still at the stage where I, I just can't believe it's true sometimes. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, I want to thank you because what you have created, and we're going to go into it more not just the podcast, but all of your lessons and your YouTube channel and your other podcast. Um, it is so valuable, not just from a language learning perspective, which I've enjoyed, but also just from a learning about cultures perspective. And when I first decided to study Russian, it was totally on a whim because I saw a picture of my great grandfather wearing his Russian Imperial Army uniform. And I mm -hmm. thought about how my relatives came to the U.S. not speaking English, had to learn a new language, 
had to create whole new lives for themselves. And I just thought, wow, like I should do them the service of learning the language that they spoke so I can understand a little bit, obviously not completely, but a tiny bit of what they went through, you know, having to learn something new and um, sort of immerse themselves in a whole new culture. So I began to study Russian on Duolingo at first and then Rosetta Stone. And then when I found your podcast, what it really did for me, in addition to listening practice, was it got me into Russian history and culture. And that really unlocked uh, not just a new um, side of language learning for me, but also a whole new framework for how people can and should think about other cultures and um, and how we all interact, you know, as fellow humans on this planet. So, yeah, your podcast was not just like interesting to me and fun, but it really just made me think, wow, you know, like we have so much the same. We have so much that's different. And it's really important that we learn about each other so that we can all, you know, do a better job of being people together on this planet. So thank you for creating something so valuable. Thank you. That was my initial goal, because I noticed there were so few resources about Russia, not just the language, but Russia in general. Back then in 2015, there were almost no podcasts, no YouTube channels. So I thought that it's just kind of weird that it's the biggest country with amazing history, sometimes dark history, of course, but still, it's so valuable, so interesting. And I just felt sad at some point that people just don't know much about it other than some big stereotypes that are circulating around the world. So I thought it's time to change it. That's why I created the podcast in the first place. And then it grew. And then it switched to YouTube channel to several more podcasts. And here we are today. And here we are. Awesome. Okay, well, let's get a little bit more into that. So I would love to hear if you're willing to share a little bit about your background growing up in Russia. And um, I'm very curious to know about you learning English, because one of the things that actually has really inspired me and kept me motivated was you sharing a little bit um, through your YouTube channel and your podcast about how even after studying English for years, you still weren't very confident in speaking it. So I would love to hear a little bit more about um, your journey growing up and then um, learning English and then what brought you to want to teach Russian? I have a pretty typical story, I'd say. I come from a Siberian, I wouldn't say town, it's still more than a million, but in Russian scale, it's like not very uh, impressive city. It's Omsk and um, my parents were both journalists so I think I just absorbed this whole cultural thing and history since the very early childhood because reading all those historical books, it was just part of my upbringing for as long as I can remember. And I think I just got this, um, um, how to, I don't even know how to say it, just this love, I guess, general love of culture and history from my parents. And this is one of the things that I'm especially grateful uh, to them. My school was uh, one of the best schools. And again, I'm so grateful they uh, took an effort to put me there because every day I had to go for a really long time to get to that school. But it was uh, one of the best in the city. And again, literature, history, and history of culture and art was very strong there, and languages too. We started learning English 
I think in the first grade, right from the beginning. First, of course, it's just some animals, some songs, colors, that stuff. And then every year it became more and more difficult, uh, some complicated topics we discussed, environmental protection, climate, uh, politics, all that kind of stuff uh, in school. And uh, I was very good at grammar back then in English, always have an A. You participated in some, I don't know if you have it in America, Olympiads. We have it, Olympiada. It's when kids from all over the city, the best kids from schools, they go to some other school and they have some kind of intellectual competition in some subject. It can be in math, it can be in Russian language, it can be anything, biology. So I always participated in English and I was always top three in the city in grammar. But when it came to speaking, I was... Not zero, zero, of course, but I just could not talk. So I could prepare a perfect answer for the exam. They gave us 20 topics, like my future profession, or my dream, or my favorite book. So I could present some amazing answer for 10 minutes. Uh, but when it came to spontaneous conversation, I had this fr freeze, you know, this pause. You, you just can't talk. I don't know what happens, you know grammar, you know vocabulary, you have all the tools, but you just can't speak. I think this is a major problem that every language learner faces at some point, when first you're confident, but then you're like, uh, and you can't just have this flowing conversation. And um, I first realized it when I traveled um, to the Czech Republic, and I couldn't do anything because I was just so afraid. I couldn't talk to waiters. I couldn't talk to basically anyone because I was so scared to speak English. And another thing that really opened my eyes was um, when I was staying at the hotel, I think in Germany, and uh, uh, a bunch of Americans came in and they were talking to each other. And I understand that they're speaking English. So I here it's English, but I understood zero. So they're talking some basic random conversation and I understood zero after more than 10 years of learning English every single day, still zero understanding. That's when I realized like, huh, I, I should do something different than learning the old way with textbooks. Uh, and that moved me to podcasts. I found uh, AJ Hogg. Uh, he had... Uh, Oh, those mini-stories, this TPRS method in English. And I listened for a month. Stories were very much below my level, very simple. Like, this is a cat. The cat is white. The cat likes to eat. Obviously, when you learn English for 10, for 15 years, you feel kind of <laughs> almost offended by this. But then I decided to trust the method, and I listened, and I answered the questions out loud, like, yes, the cat is white. No, he's not black. No, he's not red. He is a white cat. So this simple repetition. And then after a couple of months, I felt that suddenly this block that was uh, inside me, this shyness, this uh, uh, freezing every time when I had to speak English, it was just magically gone. And I'm, I was like, huh, seems to, seems to do magic with this method. That's when I thought that I will make something like that for Russian learners, because everybody was complaining that they can't speak. They know grammar, they know vocabulary, but speaking is a problem. So I made um, 
at this point, I think already more than a hundred different ministry lessons, and all the reviews are like, oh my goodness, this changed this changed my language learning completely. So yeah, now it's my favorite method in teaching Russian as well. That's so awesome. One of the funniest things for me about studying Russian um, is that, you know, I grew up in America speaking English. And I think even I grew up around very like verbal parents and an older sibling. So I was very verbal when I got to school. In fact, most of my uh, notes from teachers were like, Marion talks too much. And no one is shocked to learn that. But um, I really, because I was so fluent naturally, never learned much English grammar. And um, mm -hmm. so through studying Russian, I have learned English grammar. Like I now know my own language better because learning the parts of speech and like learning what's different between Russian and English forced me to understand what was happening in an English sentence in a way that I never had to before. So it's a really interesting process for me of like learning more about like being like a better English speaker or a more like mm -hmm. uh, informed English speaker <laughs> through studying Russian. Yeah, this is really what surprised me a lot after moving to the United States, especially, and I was teaching at the university. And I was used to explaining grammar as if people know English grammar. So I am saying, oh, it's just like present continuous. Or it's, it's just like when you say, I have been doing this and that. And then at some point uh, on the second week, I noticed there's just blank faces of students looking at me. And I am asking, did you study English grammar? Do you understand what I'm saying? And they're like, eh, actually, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, we never did. To me, it was mind-blowing. I'm, And then I asked my husband, he's American, so I asked, do you know that there are like 12 tenses, like past perfect, continuous, past perfect, this kind of stuff? He's like, what? What are you talking about? And then I found the screenshot from our textbook with this table, a special grammar table. Uh, and there is there are example examples like I'm growing roses right now. Yesterday I had been growing roses for two hours when she called me, something like that. And it's all with illustrations. And I show it to him and say, look, this is how we study English, and this is how we study Russian as native speakers as well. So for me, all this grammar explanation kind of thing. It comes naturally because that's what we do for years. And I noticed that for Americans, it's not obvious at all. A lot of people don't know the difference between consonants, between vowels. And to me, again, I was coming from this, I forgot the term, you know, when you were kind of delusional that if you know something, right. then automatically everybody knows it. It was very difficult for me to overcome this feeling and try to kind of teach things a little bit differently from what I'm used to. Yeah, I think, and I don't want to sound like conspiracy theorist about it, but something shifted in the U.S. in like the 1980s maybe because my mom is older. And I remember being in school and she would say to me, well, aren't they having you diagram a sentence? And I was like, mm -hmm. what? What? No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she did that and she's a big grammar nerd. And my husband um, is like a... American Brazilian who speaks multiple languages. So he has grammar baked into him. But yeah, for me and for other people for whom English was just like a fluent thing that they kind of showed up at school already speaking, it seems like somewhere along the line, some higher up made the decision that 
teaching formal grammar wasn't that important as long as you could just speak correctly or and write correctly. Mm-hmm. And consequently, it well, the reason I said I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist is that I think it actually does sort of stunt your ability to learn second and third languages because this whole concept of learning grammatical structures, you have to like reframe it completely in relationship to English. And you don't just have, oh, yeah, okay, so in English, I'm, you know, putting a gerund, but in Russian, I'm going to do this. Like, if you don't, and I mentioned gerund, because that's like a new word for me. It's like, if you don't know what that Mm -hmm. is, then it's harder. It's harder to translate it to a new language. So I just wonder if, I don't know, somewhere along the way, maybe in America, we decided that we didn't value the acquisition of second and third languages as much. And maybe that changed the way that we teach English. But I'm making broad, broad leaps about the education system, which, by the way, in the U.S., as I'm sure you know, is like state by state. So every state's doing it differently anyway. But in the Northeast, where I grew up, someone decided grammar didn't matter. And uh, yeah, what about cursive? Did you learn cursive? I did, but my my kids have not, and I have a teenager, mm-hmm. and she cannot write in cursive. And this is another mind blowing thing to me. Like how how can't people read cursive anymore? And I, I didn't believe at first, and then my husband, uh, I think he gave a birthday card to his older son, and he is twenty years old. And he did, he couldn't read it. I think he told him, like, what, what does it say here? So I, again, it was just something that I, I was speechless about because to me, it's absolutely unheard of. Like, how don't you learn this stuff? But on the other hand, I think later that, you know, why would you need it in the future? Because people barely even write things these days. I think in the future, it will be less and less of that. So people are typing, phones, voice to text. So I guess it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, especially as a teacher, I just can't accept it. Uh, I just can't tolerate this. Um, yeah, because it, it's good for brains too, when you write right. something by hand. It's proven by research. And yeah. so it's just a little sad that they're taking it from kids. My son, he is 10 years old. He can barely write even in printed letters he writes at the level of if he writes like that in Russia, it would be straight F. Like no, no, no matter what you write, if you write this way, this ugly writing, you are done. You you're staying for the second year. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think they definitely because they spend so much time on computers and especially obviously during COVID, um, a lot of kids mm-hmm. were home doing school on laptops. They have so moved away from handwriting, and I. I think, and I'm not a teacher, um, especially not of languages, but I do agree with you that there's something neurologically important about putting the pen to the paper. And I think that also, you know, this is a crazy world. Like if you have a huge power outage and you can't get to your computer and, and you don't know how to write a letter, like you're going to be really held yeah. back. So it's always yeah, good Yeah, and you to, can't read. It's, it's just right. kind of strange. <laughs> yeah. Even I have, a, I have a 10-year-old as well. And in her class, they sent home a thing saying that she's supposed to be reading for 30 minutes every night. But then it said in parentheses, mm-hmm. or listening to audiobooks. And I thought, oh, yeah. no, that's not right. Yeah, it's not the same. Yeah, I think you can only do it as an adult. Yeah. When you're already used both. to reading books. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So, um, okay, so you had this experience of learning English. Oh, I want to mm-hmm. ask you one more thing. This is a, a selfish question as a language learner. Mm-hmm. So I spent my whole childhood in school studying Spanish. 
And I find that when I have that freeze thing happen that you just described, if I'm trying to say, because I, I have a few Russian friends who humor me and I try to say something to them and I freeze and then my brain starts offering me Spanish. It's like, oh, mm, you, you want to speak yeah. not English? How about Spanish? And I have to go like, no, 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 I'm searching for Russian. So I know that you also speak additional languages. And I also know that you're studying Japanese. So how do you mm -hmm. deal with that? Like, is that common that your brain will sort of serve up to you your like first secondary language? Or how do you sort of how do people who speak more than two languages, how do they code switch quickly and effectively? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I think I just, uh, my brain just clicks and it switches to, so when, I, when I'm doing Japanese, I'm in this Japanese mode. So I'm, I'm there, full-scale full Japanese. When I'm uh, doing something in German, I switch to German. I don't know. I, I thought everybody <laughs> everybody's like that. But yeah, I, I don't know, honestly. In English, um, I notice that it's difficult for me now to switch between English and Russian. I speak so much English on a daily basis that my initial response comes in English now rather than Russian. And this started really to bother me. Uh, so I try to speak to my children in Russian so they don't forget it. And uh, yeah, I guess just more practice, more listening to just kind of get comfortable to that new language. Otherwise, the old one would be getting in the way for some time. But I, I don't know. There, There's no secret from me. For me, it just kind of works somehow. So I'm sorry. Well, I think I have to do the TPRS. I think that's... That's definitely, <clears throat> that works great. Yeah, yeah that works great. It's the like forcing yourself to respond out loud to those small questions that I think I'm still mm -hmm. missing. And so when I get into a conversation moment, I'm like... <gasps> <clears throat> and it just feels like scary and embarrassing. And um, my husband yeah. and I joke a lot about all the different accents. Like, I wonder with those uh, English American speakers, the English speaking Americans that were in the hotel, do you have any sense for what, um, what like region of the country they're from? Because when I hear I someone. I think they. Oh, like from the South? Yeah, or like somebody from the South. I could imagine that sounds <laughs> like a totally different language. I think they were just uh, some regular, let's say, Americans that now I have zero problems with. But yeah. back, back, back then, I was learning British English, and all I was listening to was British English uh, oh. for years. So I never dealt with American accent at all. And I think that's why it was so difficult for me. They were speaking really fast, and this was all this R sound happening, and... Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of laughing. They were saying something funny, I assume. And uh, this this is what, I guess, caused this not understanding anything. Just years being, my ears being trained uh, for British English, British accent. Now it's the opposite. Sometimes I scroll through TikTok and some British video will come up and I'm like, what? Somebody says something. I'm, I'm, no, 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 I need to rewatch it. So I have to come back and watch it again. And then my ear again kind of starts to understand what's going on. But now I'm so used to American. And I think my speaking switched to more Americanized version because I receive, for some reason, I don't know why people are so bothered by this, tons of hate on YouTube. Like, why are you pretending to be American? Like, what, you want to be American? But like, no, it's just because I'm surrounded by it so much. My husband is American, and um, everything I hear is American accent. So 
automatically my speech gets like that too. I used to have British accent when I studied British, but now that I live here, obviously my speaking changed as well. So it's not like I'm doing it on purpose or faking it. It just comes naturally for some reason to me. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You're so immersed in it. And um, and your son is in American schools, right? So I assume he's picking mm-hmm. up a lot of that as well. I, oh, he speaks perfect English. I'm shocked. Yeah. I wish I could do it like that. <laughs> just trick without learning. He just, yeah. But it's, that's children. It's children. so amazing. Children learning mm-hmm. languages is incredible. I'm I'm so jealous. But I am inspired by my father because he picked up language <clears> learning <throat> after retiring in his 70s, uh, maybe his 60s, actually. But either way, Mm -hmm. he began studying languages in his 60s. And now he speaks four, I think. And so that's amazing. He's proving that it's possible to teach an old dog new tricks, or at least new languages. (laughs) So I keep that as my inspiration. Um, Yeah, one of my oldest students is 86. Oh, my 86. Yeah, He, he said, I just want to do something for fun. And I was fun. R- Russian sounds like fun to you. What? I get like, that yeah, response. It's like mental exercise. Yes. Whenever yeah. I run into someone um, who's Russian in DC, and I say, "Oh, I study Russian," and they always ask me why, and I mm-hmm. say, "For fun," and they always say, "Studying Russian is not yeah. fun." Yeah. Like, what kind of fun is that? What's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> but it is yeah. so. Actually, this is a great pivot to kind of go into something that you do have a podcast episode about, but I would love to also just ask you about, which is the Russian language and what you love about it. Because I am merely a young student, but there are many things that I have loved about it. Um, Just, you know, the way that it sounds. And I actually love like looking at printed Cyrillic. I think it's so beautiful. There are some letters that I'm really fond of and some sounds that you make in Russian that like never happen in English. Um, and of course, like some of the classic literature and poems and and songs that you've shared. But I would love to hear from you um, what it is about the language that you really love. I love how Russian is so flexible and so rich. English is much more straightforward in terms of grammar. So you learn grammar and uh, you're kind of good, <laughs> good to go. Uh, but in Russian, grammar is just so complicated in so many ways that you switch one word position in the sentence and you get a completely new feeling. And uh, this is what um, I think is one of the most difficult things for foreigners, that this whole playing with words and intonation and emotions in Russian is just so different. And um, this is what makes our language really vibrant and uh, allows us to express so many emotions. Um, I think it's just very alive, I might say. I don't know. It's kind of the language that lives its own life. And uh, no matter how long you learn it, there is always something unexpected coming your way. And there is always some surprise about Russian that will catch you even after 10 years of learning. And also, I think uh, uh, it's not just about the language itself, but the whole, I don't know, phenomenon, if I might say so. (laughs) It's not too much phenomenon of of Russia as a country. And uh, I think through language, you can just get closer to understanding the culture of Russia, the people of Russia, and just it's a completely other level of understanding. Yeah, so I think just language is the pathway to 
just getting into understanding the country as a whole. Yes, I completely agree. And I know that I've said this to you, but I just want to kind of say for the record that one of the reasons that I reached out to you is that although broadly speaking, my podcast focuses on public health topics, and I don't think that in the public health space, we often define language learning and the study of history as critical public health topics. I do think that they are critical topics in public health. I think that when we isolate ourselves and we become uh, nationalistic and hyper-focused on our own culture and we think that our culture is uniquely special and that no other culture can compare and we don't take the time to get to know other people and their history, especially a country like Russia, which has had this sort of parallel history alongside of us and Mm -hmm. so much that we can learn from the ups and downs that um, Russia has experienced throughout their history, which is very long and richly documented. I think that learning about other cultures and especially through language is critical to public health because it helps us understand each other, which, which helps us better tolerate each other, which promotes I don't, I don't want to just say sort of like peace, like, you know, a throwaway term, but I think it promotes tolerance and understanding and a willingness to dig in. So I do think that the work that you're doing is public health work because you are showing a personalized lens into a huge culture that is so misunderstood and you are creating this sort of bridge between two cultures that I think have more in common than they realize and also um, could learn from their differences if they were willing to share. Yeah, I agree, absolutely, because I think it's one of the biggest issues today, not just in the United States, but in Russia as well. Uh, People are just... uh, I, I, I don't know how to put it, not to offend anyone, but if you don't know history, you are very vulnerable and you are a very easy target to be manipulated by other people. Because if you don't know some knowledge and some understanding, you just can't believe whatever you are told. And this is very dangerous, especially in the current situation. Uh, I see a lot of people were just, I don't know, I, I don't want to use the word brainwashed instantly, but unfortunately, there there is almost no other way to put this. And learning history, learning culture, especially from different perspectives, it really helps you to form your own opinion on things. And as a historian, my initial education uh, and specialty is history. To me, it's completely natural when I hear something I would, my first thought is who is saying this, why they might be saying this, what do, what do they want, why, what, what's the goal of this message. So instantly I'm like, oh, let me check who is the opposite opinion of this person. And I would go and Google who is the, the opposite thinking type of a person, read what they have to say, then I will do something else, uh, some research, and then I will try to think of how, what, what am I thinking about it. And I see a lot of people just instantly get some piece of news, and uh, they just repeat it as their own opinion. And when you try to ask, like, why why do you think so? What, do you know anything about this or about that? Have you ever heard of that? No. And they don't feel it necessary even to do any further research. So I am trying my best to implement as much cultural knowledge, as much uh, tiny historical things into my uh, learning uh, language learning programs as well, because 
I just really hope to feel to fill those gaps and blanks in uh, knowledge of Russian history. Unfortunately, not everybody is interested. <laughs> so yeah. only people who are already interested in Russia, they would go and maybe learn something new. But a uh, majority of people, I guess, they prefer to stay, yeah, to stay. I, again, I'm, I will offend everybody if I say... We're know, just getting controversial. I always call it kind of volunteer uh, incompetence, volunteer delusion. So some people just prefer to be this way. And um, only, I think, this year I finally got peace with myself and I thought, finally realized that I don't have to teach everybody. Mm-hmm. Before I had this urge, like, I must, this person is wrong. They don't know this. I must tell them. I must prove kind of enlighten them and then i realized why no if they want to yeah it's not not my problem so i'm not pushing history on anyone anymore well i will start in your honor because i i was honestly (laughs) like i was not a passionate student of history uh as a kid growing up i really was pretty kind of like whatever who cares history is boring And Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know how history was taught in your schools. I mean, you had this personal in with your parents being journalists and having sort of like a personal lens into history through that. But for me, learning history in school, it felt like you were sat down and you were given a timeline of births, deaths, wars, and white men. Yeah. And then you were quizzed on it. It's always about war for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, on this day, this guy was born. He died here. At this point, he fought in a battle. And then, like, we made a statue. And that's that's history. And through actually studying language through you, hearing history stories, and then developing a passion for Russian history, and then by proxy, American history, um, because I realized that really important things were happening in Russia and the U.S. at the same time, I Mm -hmm. fell in love with history because I realized that I'm a big people person, and I love to hear like salacious gossip and the details of people's lives, and history is people, and it's juicy stories. Exactly. So what's what's, yeah, what's boring about rumors. that? Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. I read this like huge, thick biography of Catherine the Great. And boy, that mm-hmm. was just an incredible, incredible tale. Um, and I read this amazing book about uh, World War One. I. I forget what it's called. Maybe Royal Cousins. It's it's a three part journey through the time frame around World War One that profiles um, the King of England, the um, czar of russia and the leader of germany at the time because they were all cousins Mm -hmm. and it just talks about the time period through each of their experiences and how they overlapped and you know the correspondences between them and it's juicy it's human you know it's dramatic and it really just like lit a fire under me that history is so important and we can learn so much from it to bring to our current struggles and if we are experiencing a struggle today and we think it's unique we're wrong People in history have definitely experienced this before, maybe with like, you know, less technology in their palms, but they had always their new technology of the day, their enlightenment, you know. So I just think that it is so, so, so fun to study history. But I did not know that when I was younger. So you can put down the torch if you've you've been battling people about history, <laughs> but I'm, I'm picking up the torch because I'm fired up about it because okay. I think history is so fun and important. And what a great combination of things when something is both fun and important. You got to do it. 
Yeah, I absolutely love history and uh, not just for educational purposes. For educational too, uh, you know the saying, uh, like what you said, uh, history tends to repeat itself. And also there is a saying, if you don't know history, you will have to repeat it. Right, doomed to repeat mistake. it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, unfortunately, school just ruins it for so many people just learning those dates i'm up to this day can uh, just chronologically name all the rulers from 962 from the very first ruler of russia up to the last czar and for what reason like, why do i even need this knowledge and unfortunately that's how history is taught too um, much more interesting to learn how people actually lived in their daily lives how did they look like what were they doing on daily basis and this part is so neglected for some reason. I really hope that one day they will change the attitude to teaching history overall and just stop talking about the rulers and start talking about common people and what they, their lives were about. This is what makes history so much more interesting to study than just learning boring dates and names and battles and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Also, this is like a little bit tangential, but um, I was able to go back to school as an adult. So I just graduated college officially a couple of years ago because I was mm -hmm. a teen mom and I dropped out and I worked and I ended up going back to school a few years ago. And so because of that, I was fortunate to take a few Russian classes in the university. And uh, one of the ones that I took was just like a Russian culture and history class. Uh, which was super cool and interesting. And I had to write a final paper. And I think the topic was just kind of like whatever you want. And so mm -hmm. I wrote a paper about my view, which is that I think in America, there's a stereotype that Russian culture is very um, anti-feminist, you know, not pro-woman, that women are forced into these cliches and that, you know, American culture is much more progressive and much more feminist. <clears throat> and yet my mm -hmm. studying of Russian history showed me that there's this tradition of female rulers who had so much power and so much cultural influence. And we don't have anything like that in the U.S. Um, so I'd be curious to know, like, do you have any opinions on that? Like, I know that maybe my perspective is both underinformed and maybe naive, but I feel like the fact that Russia has this rich history of female rule and empowerment must mean that there's some amount of like baked in female empowerment and feminism in Russia, even if it looks a little bit different than maybe we think of feminism in the U.S. Um, I mean, do you think that it's that it's um, justified the American view that that Russia is anti-feminist? I think American view mostly talks about current days. And today, yeah, Russia is very much behind America in this matter in terms of uh, home violence and difference in paycheck and general attitude uh, to uh, women as equal on in some tiny day-to-day -day things. Uh, in history, Russia, I think, was one of the first countries that had this women emancipation movement after the revolution women had their own organizations and uh, they were working uh, they were like, doing everything and uh, in america i think even in the 50s women were mostly housewives we were studying history of my husband's family recently and no matter which 
female character from there you take. It's just, she doesn't even have her own name. It's, I just, it just struck me. I've felt so sad for those women for some reason. In one newspaper, we were trying to find this great grandmother of his, and we couldn't even find her first name. It says, Mrs., let's say, John James. She, not first name, not her maiden name, nothing. It's literally Mrs. and her the, her husband's name. So there's nothing left uh, of her. And there were so many women like that. I was shocked because in Russia, it's always... Uh, I, I just never heard of women being so secondary. But I think in Russia, it has to do with necessity mostly. In Russian history... Women had to struggle a lot again because of all the wars, first uh, in revolution, then civil war in 1920s, then uh, World War II, half of the men were just gone to war, millions of them died, so women had to replace them entirely, working on factories and bringing children at the same time. So in Russia, this... Uh, women feeling strong. It's something that is uh, very much up to date. But in society overall, um, women are still not as protected as in the United States. For example, let's take alimony. It's completely normal in Russia for men to just disappear and uh, nobody will do anything. Or they will find some super low-paying job on paper and you can't do anything. He just show out, shows up in the court and says, like, oh, I'm doing bare minimum. And at the same time, he's buying new BMW and, yeah. So that, that part, women are very much vulnerable in Russia. But historically, historically, they've been, yeah, in, in good places sometimes in terms of equality. Do you have any favorite female rulers in Russia from history? Um... Uh, you mentioned Catherine the Great. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of her. <laughs> she is great She's woman. She did a lot. Um, she did a lot of great things. <clears throat> first of all, it's interesting that she's not even Russian. I was going to say she place. is a German. She, so. Yeah, yeah. She her entire life she spoke it with a thick accent, and um, but her dedication to Russian culture and language was phenomenal. Uh, because I think she truly abandoned her German side and she really turned herself into a full-blown Russian person culturally. Uh, for example, uh, the wife of Nicholas I, most of the wives came from Germany at some point, and uh, she kept herself German until the last day. She was uh, organizing her rooms in German style. He was celebrating German holidays. Uh, Catherine, I think, completely abandoned that part of her life. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, she's one of the few rulers who actually did this. That's why I kind of respect her at, at this point. But again, she did so many things that uh, I think turned Russia into the wrong way. Could have been much better. Uh, she had a choice uh, at some point during this in enlightenment, uh, enlightenment movement in Europe. She was very progressive, and she had a chance to implement all those reforms that were circulating around Europe to free people, to free peasants. Um, but she chose not to. She chose the absolute power, this totalitarian almost uh, power. And then I think it became worse and worse for Russia and turned out to what, what we have today, 
People just never basically experienced freedom in Russia. Uh, but yeah, she's 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 a great great woman of her time. Yes, and so complicated. I mean, just so interesting. And just thinking about again the parallels between what was happening in the United States while Catherine the Great was in power. Um, it just feels like I don't know. These days, I think we often we speak in extremes like people are more divided than ever and the world is more crazy than ever. But thinking about what Mm -hmm. it must have been like to be alive in the mid to late 1700s, it just seems like everything was changing and everything was opening up and it, it must have just been completely, I don't know, similar maybe, but just completely electric. Um, And perhaps a little bit scary for the people, the people of the time, because everything they knew was changing. And some people were excited about that and others weren't, which, again, is something that we see today. Like things change and that scares some people and excites some people. And then a lot of us are left in the middle saying, well, maybe we should like, you know, have virtual podcasts, but also learn cursive. Like, why can't we do it all? Why can't we have both, (laughs) you guys? Let's let's do both. And people before, I think they had the privilege of not knowing things. Right. Because if something terrible happened somewhere, before it reaches your distant village somewhere in the mountains, it, it might be several months. So by the time you get the news, you're like, oh, okay, it's just happened. And today we have all those live events. You can literally open your phone and get the footage from some crazy places that you're not even um, supposed to see those things. And today it's just like instant you get this and that and all this negativity around. I don't think uh, we're benefiting from it today, to be honest. Yeah, so people before, maybe it's how they say the ignorance is a bliss <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Yeah, we are so stressed today. But at the same time, again, I just can't stop learning, can't stop watching stuff, can't stop looking for more. Right. You know? I mean, there's obvious, there's this obvious plus and minus, right? Where on the one hand, um, I mean, let's just take social media and YouTube, for example. On the one hand, you've been able to build this whole like teaching community and business through these platforms. Um, And people in the U.S. were able to learn from you when you were still in Russia and you were able to find opportunities in the U.S. that excited you to come check out um, all, you know, using the Internet and these platforms. But on the other hand, I'm sure that, as you mentioned earlier and as I've seen you mention in other capacities, you've received lots of negative attention and anger and outrage from people, whether it's because you sound too American or because, you know, your country is engaged in a war that has nothing to do with you. Um, so it's really a double-edged sword. And to that point, I would love um, to hear, if if it's okay, to hear you speak on um, the experience of being a Russian person in America at a time that <coughs> Russians have faced some just like angry outrage from the American public who may or may not have be very well educated about the topic um, and are just sort of like willing to mm-hmm. place their anger on individual Russians as opposed to taking it up with, you know, the governments? Yeah, I never experienced any negativity in America or anywhere else as a Russian person up until today, even we've been, what, two years almost in war, and still in person, not a single time was anyone, I don't know, not animosity or anything like nothing like that everybody is always supportive and when I say I always openly say that I'm from Russia I'm from Omsk I lived in Moscow so I 
openly talk about it. I know that a lot of people try to say like, oh, I'm from Eastern Europe suddenly. <laughs> no, you're not. You're from Russia. Uh, yeah, and um, everybody's supportive. And uh, obviously, if you don't support the war, nobody would, uh, I don't know, say anything bad to you. And um, all the hate I got was online. Online, yes, people get really crazy, but they're crazy about everything. If it's, if it's not the war, it would be something else. Because before I got hated on for all kinds of things. So I guess there are always people who just love to argue, who just love to kind of get engaged in some... Because people are arguing. I go to the videos sometimes, especially if the video has a lot of views, more than a million views. I stop looking at comments because it's just way too much. But sometimes I just see the top notifications. The video is about the Russian salad, this herring under the fur coat. And there people are arguing, so what are you, parent one or parent two? Or what? What? Are, where are you kind of calling from? From some... I don't know. So they bring something completely irrelevant. Something about, again, stereotypical... American stereotypes, and it has nothing to do with the content, but people manage to write hundreds of comments arguing with each other about it. So sometimes I will step in and look, what are you even talking about? The video is about a salad. Why are you... I don't know. It's just... But I guess I'm so used to this that um, it doesn't hurt me or anything. Sometimes when people come really aggressive, uh, especially against my kids, this really makes me angry. Again, some video was about me uh, not being able to walk to the coffee shop because it's only for cars in America, and I love walking. So I recorded a video, I want to walk and I can't, and I don't drive, I, ha I don't have a driver's license, so it's a problem for me. Somebody starts to write, all Russians must die. Look at those disgusting children. They should rot in grave for what they did in Ukraine. And I'm like, dude, my son is nine and another one is one year old. What are you talking about? Are you feeling better about yourself after saying this or what? So I don't know, Some the level of uh, hatred towards uh, people, literally children who have nothing to do with that, this I don't understand. Some people believe in this... Uh, mutual responsibility so everybody's responsible but i i don't know i don't believe in this there are people who are responsible for the war who are responsible for the atrocities but russia is a huge country there are 100 and what 60 million people so definitely not everybody is involved in this so hating and wanting to murder my kids for this it's just I don't know. I don't think it does any good to anyone to spread that hatred online. But yeah, unfortunately, it's happening. Yeah. I also think it's always very interesting, first of all, when people think that violence is a good response to their condemning of violence. Like, I think you're mm -hmm. violent, so I want to murder your children. Oh, oh, all right. That makes total sense. Yeah, that's sense. good. Yeah, that's a really that good solution. <laughs> Great job. And I also think yeah. as an American... Unfortunately, we have to reckon with the fact that we don't have a perfect past of not invading innocent countries, of not b mm -hmm. bombing women and children out of their homes. Unfortunately, we have a very complex history. And whether or not there are wars that we've waged that I did not or would not or do not support, that doesn't necessarily 
have anything to do with what I have control over in my day-to-day life. And certainly historically, because as as you mentioned, people did not used to have access to what their countries were doing moment to moment the way that we might now. I mean, now we can see people on the battlefield texting home, you know, or, you know, opening up mm-hmm. Snapchat and sending snaps of themselves from a trench. Yeah, so crazy. Which is crazy, yeah. right? But um, imagine like a, a Snapchat from Wilfred Owen, the World War One poet, like mm-hmm. just snapping his friends back at home. And yeah. instead of writing Dolce et Decorum Est, I mean, we might have missed out on a great poem. But I just think like, as an American, how can you turn to a Russian person and condemn them for a war that their country is involved in? I mean, obviously, if you were putting out a lesson called like, I love this <clears throat> war, then OK, fine. Maybe the comments under that could yeah. could go in that direction. But just to come after you or your children for being Russian, just as an American, you don't have any ground to stand on there. It's like we've waged unpopular wars. We have to reckon with that. We are people. Our government doesn't always represent us. That's what it means to be a person in this world, right? It's complicated. Yeah, but I guess here it comes again to this not knowing history, because when you ask people about Iraq, if Vietnam, people don't know it. People don't know that there was propaganda, that there were war crimes or anything. It's, it's just different. It's not the same. We can't compare it. I'm like, okay, it's not that... Um, so yeah, again, you, you should just look deeper. I really don't like this argument when because Russian propaganda uses it a lot today, saying when somebody accuses them, uh, they would say, "Well, well, look at Americans, look at what they did." It's, yeah, but it's kind of a thing when you're I don't know beating your wife, and when the police comes to you, you say, "Look, look at my neighbor, he's." beating her with legs. I'm just using my fists. So it's it's not the same. Kind of, I'm better than that. This argument kind of, it doesn't mean you can't do bad things if somebody else did it in, uh, in the past. But at the same time, completely neglecting this part of your history and pretending that, oh, we are the good guys and uh, Russia is completely evil. It's just, yeah, it doesn't work like that, too. But unfortunately, so many people don't care to look deeper, to learn any dark sides of their own history. So I guess it's it's just easier to pretend that you're a good guy. Russian people think they're good guys. Even today, Russian people think they're saving Ukraine from evil West. So they're thinking they're fighting the great patriotic war again. Right. Against bad guys, yeah. And speaking of that, I wanted to touch briefly on World War II because, again, I was not a good history student as a child. I admit that. But I still think that even when I was paying attention in history, that nobody was emphasizing Russia's role in World War II. And I was shocked when I listened to your lessons about um, Victory Day and just how important Russian culture and World War II history, like how much emphasis Mm -hmm. is put on World War II. Um, I had no idea about Russia's involvement and how much it shaped Russian culture. So I would love to hear you speak about that a little bit because I have to imagine that if I had no idea that many other Americans have no idea or at least a very underemphasized idea of the role that Russia played in World War II. Yeah, this is, was uh, another surprising thing to me, especially when I came here and I realized on May 8, May 9, nothing is happening. 
like nothing. In Russia, if you go there in May, it's huge. It is the biggest holiday. It's bigger than 4th of July in America, the celebrations. And um, it's so strongly implemented in our upbringing, in our education everywhere. So every single person in Russia, I think, knows more about World War II than anybody else probably in the world because we grow up like that. And uh, I remember all the time in my school, veterans would come and share stories. And um, every year we would have this massive celebration with learning songs and poems and all the movies were about the war and how terrible it was. I know dozens of uh, poems uh, from the World War II time and songs. I know all of them by heart. And um, the celebration is huge. You just go bring flowers. You hug veterans on the streets. And uh, it's all day long festivities today. Today got kind of over the top sometimes, kind of too much. We should not celebrate the ending of any war like that, I guess. But it's a different story. Um, so in Russia, every family was affected and, um, everybody knows their ancestors. Somebody died in the war, somewhat, somebody was, uh, heavily wounded, somebody got missing. And it's literally every family. If you, I ask 20 of my friends, everybody would say like, oh, in my family, this person went to war, this person died. So, of course, everybody was affected. And I think uh, in the United States, not a single time in history that kind of war happened. Uh, even during Vietnam, when people were drafted and sent there by force, it still was somewhere else. It was not here. Nobody was coming to houses. And um, it was just not that massive like it was in Russia when just entire villages were burned down together with uh, inhabitants. Um, so this... Trauma is huge in Russia, and even today, still up to this day. That's why I think current events were so easily, again, people got so easily manipulated, because this old wound, this old memory of those events, they used it really well to represent current events, unfortunately. Do you think that, and, you know, I don't want to feed into Russian propaganda or appear to be, like, an apologist for anything, but... Do you think that there's any, like, resentment between, or uh, like, coming from Russians around how Americans portray America as having, like, saved the world? Like, I feel like the story from America, which I think is told pretty broadly throughout the West in general, is like, yeah, saved America Europe. <laughs> saved Europe. Like, we did it. America did it. American soldiers liberated the concentration camps. Yeah. And Americans did this. And Americans did that. And meanwhile, like... Every single family in Russia lost their brother, uncle, or father, or grandfather. Yeah. In Russia, it's the opposite view. In Russia, it's that Russians saved everybody. And uh, about America, uh, it's taught that America always takes the opportunity. They always join the very last moment to just take advantage of everybody. When kind of things already turned the right way, that's when Americans jumped in and just got richer, kind of benefited from the war. This is how it's uh, taught in Russia. And and um, before, it was uh, always uh, like the Allies did this, Allies did that, Britain, USA, uh, Russia. So it was mentioned. But 
year after year, I'm closely watching this um, development. And even during Putin's speeches on May 9 in Russia on this Red Square, he has this massive bombastic speech every year. And it gets more and more crazy. So first he was always mentioning uh, allied forces. And at some point, even American Marines were marching on the Red Square, I think in 2015 or something. French troopers came. It was a really massive event. And year after year, they just disappear. And uh, one year he said, we were the only ones in this war. We were completely alone fighting the evil. <laughs> I'm watching this. I'm like, what? It's not kind of, it is called world war for a reason, but now they're twisting it to the point where Russia, not just the, not the Soviet Union, no, Russia was fighting against everybody, saved Europe, and this is how Europe repays us today, kind of ungrateful. We saved them, we liberated them, and then they forget to mention that after liberating some parts, they actually turned it to the second occupation. For example, in Baltic countries like Estonia, they call the Soviet period the occupation time, which is insanely insulting for Russians today. But for them, it is occupation. They were occupied by foreign foreign troops. Same with Lithuania, same with Latvia, all the countries. Even Ukraine thinks they were occupied by Russians back then. Uh, so, yeah, in Russia, again, this is part of propaganda. You emphasize one part of history showing we did this great liberation, but you completely kind of turn the blind eye to what you did next. Yeah. And most people have no idea yeah. of any bad things the communist regime did, did in those countries. Right. Yeah, I mean, of course, like, again, there are overlaps with U.S. history. And it just, when I when I learned how how much we had to work together during World War II, it shocked me how quickly that became the Cold War. Um, and you have a new episode on your podcast mm -hmm. about the Cold War, which is excellent. It is in Russian and then also back and forth um, with English. So English speakers can enjoy it, but you get that extra boost of learning Russian words and grammar along with the history. But um, again, the Cold War, not a period that I found especially interesting when I was in school, but I, I have been thinking a lot more about it these days um, and all the parallels that exist. And I really enjoyed your recent episode on it as well. So quick plug for that because I highly recommend the episode. But it just oh, thank you. it just seems like to have been sort of working together to change the course of the war in Europe and then to just very quickly shift into this like Cold War. It seems yeah, it shifted shocking. this competition between capitalism and communism, and trying to prove the to the rest of the world like what they should choose. So basically, you should decide who you're with uh, for all the other countries. Also, that time's crazy. But at the same time, I think Cold War uh, caused several positive outcomes, like this space exploration and all that kind of things. So I guess. As always, something negative, something positive. Yeah, I'm glad it's over, but turns out we go on another spiral <laughs> of the Cold War today again. Yeah. Russia and um, the USA, they just can't calm down. Yeah. They just can't leave each other alone. It's just ongoing rivalry for no reason at all. Is there something, and maybe this is way too big of a question to ask for one answer, but as someone who has lived in Russia and America 
married to an American, you know, children being raised here. Is there anything that really jumps out at you that you see that Russians and Americans have in common that maybe they really have no idea about? Like something that we share either culturally or um, like values wise, and we just don't know how much we have in common? I was uh, first struck by how similar we are, uh, thanks to the movie, actually. David, my husband, showed me a Christmas story, you know, the movie about a Ralphie boy who wanted the gun, and I was shocked. It felt as if I'm watching the movie about the Soviet Union, because it looked exactly like my childhood in the late 80s and even the beginning of the 90s. Russia was uh, a little bit behind, and all those little episodes of being all kind of dressed in gigantic coat, not being able to put your hands down, and um, your tongue being frozen, and all the school activities, everything, just all the interactions between parents, between kids, everything was exactly the same. So I was like, huh, wow, how is it possible that two completely different systems, the whole Cold War was about it, of how different it is. But at the same time, again, coming to the idea that history is about people, not about the governments, people were living exactly the same kind of life, same family values, just same little daily moments they shared, not knowing about it, because the Cold War divided them and you couldn't learn the truth about the other side. Um, and same same today, Russian people are the sweetest people uh, in the world. They're so just generous, hospitable. And I see the same about Americans. And uh, again, there are these stereotypes circulating in both societies against each other. Like, oh, Russians are these grumpy, kind of angry people. And Russians would say, oh, Americans can't have true friends. They're all fake and all these fake smiles and artificial just... Uh, and in reality, it's just people are the same. And here I came to America, I was able to make friends. Everybody's very heartwarmingly welcoming to me. And same in Russia, when foreigners, Americans go to Russia, they're shocked of how just warm Russian people are, despite all the stereotypes about their being <laughs> just grumpy face all the time. So I think in daily life, we are so much closer than people realize that it is very sad that, again, governments are pushing narratives to divide people more and more. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. And, you know, you and I, we're both moms. We're both working moms. We're both juggling a million things. You know, we both had to put a bunch yeah. of things aside to be here today. So once again, I'm very grateful to you for making time for this conversation. And I want to make sure before we wrap up that we do talk a little bit more about your work because you have some awesome new content that's coming out. Um, I also want to touch on a few of my favorite episodes of the Slow Russian podcast. So I love episode 94, where you talk about the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, because I had... Oh, it's, uh, it's the love of my life. And I had never, <laughs> I love it I so had much. never heard of him before, <laughs> and I learned so it's crazy. much. I know. How did I... But of course, again, American schools. I learned all about how great America was. Yeah, you know about Armstrong. I know about Neil Armstrong. Armstrong and Buzz, <laughs> yes. you know, which all the American people, and Apollo 13 was a, yeah. a hit film, but it was really exciting to learn about... 
um, everything that he went through and even his mysterious demise. Um, and I really loved episode 90, where you said it was like clickbait, where you said it was a Thanksgiving in Russia, but it was about um, mm-hmm. Yablichny Spas or the sort of apple, yeah, yeah, apple yeah. fairy or apple spirit holiday. I, I listened to that episode, I think, maybe 20 times because I thought it was so interesting and there was a lot of good um, food vocabulary, which I, which I love. Um, and I really, really loved your episodes 75 and 77, where you talk to your mom about the pluses and minuses of life in the Soviet Union, partially because like we've just been saying, learning about a real person's history of a lived Mm -hmm. experience during uh, a very like taught about time period was very interesting and enriching. I loved hearing both what she thought was good and also what she thought was bad. Um, But I also really loved like learning the word new. I just loved that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I loved hearing real people talk because, you know, I love my Duolingo, but how often am I going to say like, my cat has a large knife? Just not, not very often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very, it's very fun and interesting to hear you talk to your mom Um, And I've actually like slowed it down even more and listened to it on like half speed. But um, I really, really enjoyed those episodes a lot. Oh, and I loved episode four from back in 2016, which means you've been doing this forever. But Father Frost, the episode about Father (laughs) Frost. Yeah, he is so adorable. I like him so much more than Santa, to be honest. Than Santa, and he has because Santa's since childhood bothered me. Santa's behavior, this kind of whole spying whole on thing. people. Yeah, kind of just doesn't click with me even up to date. So to my kids, Santa comes and uh, Grandpa Frost comes to them too. Still, because I, I tell them you are from Russia, so both uh, both wizards come for you. <laughs> They're so lucky. Twice as many presents. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, I definitely, I hope, and I want to just make sure that the people listening know that although the Slow Russian podcast is about learning (laughs) Russian, you really can listen to it as just an English speaker who's curious about culture because there is so much to learn culturally uh, in the stories as well. But you have a new product or lesson or community that you've that you've opened up which is exclusively focused on russian culture and history and it's taught in english is that correct yeah exactly i just thought that i am uh, missing on all those people who really care about russia for example they had roots uh, coming kind of coming from russia some ancestry uh, or they were adopted from Russia, for example, but they don't have anyone left there. And technically, they don't plan to go there, and they don't need the language, but they are curious about history and culture. So I thought I must make something for those people, because not everybody wants to learn this really difficult language, and I understand that. But also, I wanted to share just my love for Russian history, Russian culture, that's why I decided to finally, after almost 10 years, to create something specifically about culture in English so people don't have to to learn Russian. Well, I will definitely link to that in the show notes because I'm very excited about that as well. And we'll be telling everyone to go check it out. But I will also continue to push the podcast because I just think it's so good. And you're a great podcaster. You have a great voice for it. And you're obviously so passionate about the Russian culture, the Russian language, and the way that you teach about it. It just, I think, 
I speak for myself, but I think many of your students when I say like it really keeps us coming back because um, your passion, your authentic passion for the topic is very infectious and it really just keeps us wanting to show up and learn more and see what new episodes you're putting out. So I will definitely continue to be refreshing my my feed. I, I have noticed that you've been putting out a few more recently. I finally got back to it. Yeah, unfortunately, I was so busy uh, for several years, I might say. It's crazy. Uh, since 2020, all this moving to the United States and uh, working and having a new kid, it just kind of set me back a little bit. But now, finally, I'm back on track and I really hope to upload regularly from now on because I really love doing it. It's just something that gives me energy when I feel kind of tired and exhausted. And then at 2 a.m. I sit down and record and I'm just, then I can't go to sleep until five because I'm so excited and just so energized by this. I wish I could do it during daytime <laughs> to be that energized and happy. But yeah, well, all of us recordings, all of us benefit from it. So thank you. And I'm very grateful. I want to make sure that I don't take up too much of your time because it is the weekend and you have many things to attend to. And of course, it's Christmas season. Do you have any fun, exciting holiday theme plans this weekend? Any decorating, hot cocoa? Oh, we! I planned everything. I think my husband will start hating me on some, at some point because he really likes to stay home and I keep bringing some more and more stuff, Christmas lights and then some ice sculpturing and then some festivities here and there. And this weekend we have the big celebration in Russian school. So there will be Grandpa Frost, Snigurochka, all the characters. So we're going there for the Russian celebration. That's awesome. I look forward to following that content on Instagram and YouTube because I'm sure it's coming (laughs) and I will be very excited to see it. Well, Daria, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. I am so grateful. It's been such a pleasure and really a dream to speak with you because I've been following your work for so many years and it's meant so much to me. So to be able to share your work and your message and how it relates to public health with my audience is so important to me. And so I just want to truly authentically thank you for taking the time to be here. And I hope that we can stay connected and keep promoting this message of sort of like personal growth and cultural tolerance through history and language. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a huge honor for me. I was really happy when you invited me and uh, just genuinely adore speaking about Russia and about Russian culture, even if it's something negative sometimes. Uh, I just deeply love what I'm doing. So I'm really grateful that you invited me to talk about it. Thank you. You're welcome. Truly my pleasure. Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on my guest and her many podcasts and YouTube channels, please find the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much once again for listening, and we will see you next time. Paka paka. It means bye bye. <laughs> paka paka. That's what Daria always says to you.